Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Remembering 9-11, Political Blowback or Divine Judgment, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 16th, 2007. Over Labor Day weekend in 2001, I took my son to New York City to celebrate the beginning of high school. We saw Phantom of the Opera, rode the subway to a Mets baseball game, and took a windy boat ride to the Statue of Liberty. As the boat returned to Battery Park, we snapped photos of the iconic 110-story World Trade Center. When its twin towers were completed in 1972 and 1973, they were the tallest buildings in the world. They even had their own zip code, 10048. And on a normal workday, they welcomed 200,000 workers and visitors. One week later, on September 11th, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airliners in a coordinated suicide attack. One plane slammed into the North Tower of the WTC, another into, a south, into the South Tower, a third one plowed into the Pentagon, and a fourth plane that was targeted for the U.S. Capitol building crashed in rural Pennsylvania after passengers wrestled control from the hijackers. 2,974 people died in the carnage including 343 firefighters and 60 police officers. 24 people are still missing. Although he first denied any responsibility, on October 30, 2004, Osama bin Laden said that he had directed the attacks. Six years later, Americans still struggle to understand why al-Qaeda attacked us. What sort of narrative best interprets the tragedy? Can we identify a cause or reason for the attacks? That's a delicate task. We should be careful not to blame the innocent. No nation deserves a terrorist attack against its civilians, and least of all the victims and their families. But that's different than searching for an explanation to make sense of what happened. In one view, the attackers were motivated by their hatred of our Western values, democracy, religious pluralism, freedom of speech, freedom to vote, and toleration of dissent. In this black and white view, there's no middle ground or ambiguity. Nations are either for us or against us. On one side, there's an axis of evil that wills us harm, and on the other side, enlightened people who champion the true, the good, and the just. But if Muslims hate our secular liberal values, why do they want to come to the West? And why export our alien values to their lands at the barrel of a gun? There might be some elements of truth in this view, but I don't find it compelling. Another view examines the consequences of American foreign policy. 
1998 fatwa by Osama bin Laden and others objected not to American values, but to three crimes and sins, as they called them. Number one, our support for the United Nations sanctions against Iraq. These lasted from 1990 to 2003 and hastened the death of a million citizens. UNICEF, for example, says that 500,000 children died as a result of the sanctions. Number two, our biased support for Israel to the detriment of Palestinians. And number three, the presence of our numerous military bases in sacred Muslim lands. This 1998 fatwa also mentioned America's plundering of Arab resources, support for abusive regimes, and undermining self-determination by dictating policy. In this second view, the 9-11 attacks were a classic case of blowback. Blowback, says Chalmers Johnson, is simply another way of saying that a nation reaps what it sows. The term first appeared in a 1953 CIA document about America's overthrow of the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, who wanted to nationalize Iran's oil industry, which until that point had been controlled what later became British Petroleum. Blowback describes the unintended consequences of America's covert operations and foreign policies. What many people around the world hate about America, Johnson argues, is our global militarism and predatory economic policies. In his view, they virtually assure retaliations against America for decades to come. Instead of acting prudently, we have acted with what has become predictable condescension towards other nations and with myopia about the consequences. Our overwhelming and global military economic threat, exercised with almost no fear of retaliation, is, quote, seeding resentments that are bound to breed attempts at a re retaliation, end quote. In addition to these human factors of politics, history, economics, religion, and culture, should Christians appeal to God's providential intervention to explain the terrorist attacks? No less than an Abraham Lincoln described the Civil War as God's judgment on America for slavery. What role, if any, did God play in the 9-11 attacks? Angering Muslim extremists with an imprudent foreign policy is bad enough, but angering God himself would be calamitous. Jerry Falwell construed the 9-11 attacks as divine punishment. On his nationally televised program, he claimed that the wickedness of pagans, abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, the ACLU, and people for the American way were one reason God had punished America. I point the finger in their face, said Falwell, and I say, you help this happen. Pat Robertson, a guest on the show, nodded in agreement, saying, well, I totally concur. In Falwell's view, America's policies aren't wrong because they're politically imprudent as a matter of practice, 
Rather, they're morally wrong as a matter of principle because they violate God's standards. It would be convenient to dismiss Falwell's remark as reckless and hateful, which it is. But that would obscure an important truth. The Hebrew scriptures from Exodus and Jeremiah this week unambiguously affirm that Yahweh intervenes not only in the lives of individuals, but in the affairs of nations, and that he sometimes judges nations with what in Jeremiah he calls disaster upon disaster. Jeremiah 4, verses 12, 15, and 20, and also Exodus 32, verse 14. So Falwell was right that God judges nations, but in my view, wrong about where he assigned the blame. The Exodus story from Exodus chapter 32 specifies idolatry as Israel's undoing. Their downfall was religious idolatry in particular, but you can idolize anything when you absolutize the relative and then offer your unconditional allegiance to it. Money, sex, work, family, and so on. And so I sometimes wonder about American political idolatry. For example, the 33-page National Security Strategy of 2002 praises American democratic capitalism as, quote, the single sustainable model for national success, right and true for every person in every society, end quote. And so we intend to export our way of life, quote, to every corner of the globe, end quote. The national security strategy also says that we'll act unilaterally and preemptively against any nation that tries to thwart us. I cringe to imagine how the 192 member states of the United Nations hear such pompous pronouncements. And I also wonder what the Lord, who shows no favoritism but welcomes all nations and peoples, thinks about our pretensions. Nevertheless, caution is in order. There are many reasons why we should be reluctant to link divine judgment and national disaster, whether for America or for any nation. It's one thing to affirm that God acts in the history of nations, but quite another to claim to know exactly how, when, where, or why. No nation is purely good or evil, but probably a mixture of both. A nation's ordinary citizens often hold opinions far removed from the megalomania of its political leaders. In Luke chapter 13, 1-5, Jesus warned us not to link human tragedy and divine judgment. Isaiah 55 verse 8 reminds us that the ways of an infinite God transcend the minds of finite humans. In a review of the book God's Judgments, Interpreting History in the Christian Faith, 
by Stephen Kyler. Brad Gregory of Notre Dame offers wise counsel. Gregory says that claims of divine providence and divine judgment are at a minimum empirically unverifiable, if not also naive, irresponsible, and dangerous. We should not wish divine judgment on anyone or on any nation. We should wish them God's shalom. When you imagine that God hates all the people that you hate, then you can be sure you've created God in your own image. No, said the German pastor Martin Niemöller, who was imprisoned by Hitler for eight years, God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his own enemies. The Hebrew story from Exodus 32 makes a final and decisive point. Divine judgment is not predetermined. God's will is not some irresistible and implacable destiny, as if he were a puppeteer pulling strings. Instead, history is open and fluid. It's a mysterious interplay of divine mercy and human choices. Israel was idolatrous, we read in Exodus 32, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God, and as a result, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Exodus 32, 11-14 That's an outcome for which we can all pray all the time for all the nations of the world. For books this week, I review a book by Lindsay Crittenden, the Water Will Hold You, A Skeptic Learns to Pray. New York, Harmony Books, 2007, 232 pages. When she was four years old, Lindsay Crittenden was practicing that magical trick many adults still remembers, floating on your back in the swimming pool. When you flap and flail, you'll sink. But if you just relax, said Crittenden's swimming instructor, Mrs. Ursula, the water will hold you. And such is the experience of Christian prayer, as Crittenden describes it in this memoir. By her college years, Lindsay Crittenden was a lapsed Episcopalian and a doubter. But in 1996, she walked into All Souls Church in Berkeley and to her shock, embarked on a lifetime pilgrimage shaped by Christian prayer. At first, her prayers were visceral and spontaneous. She would pray, You are here, I am here. But as her faith grew, initial spontaneity gave way to disciplined intentionality, including regular worship, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the Rosary, candles, and spiritual direction from her pastors. She compares a life of prayer to her discipline of writing. If I waited for inspiration, she said, I'd never write a word. I had to make prayer a habit, to go to it the way I went each morning to my writing desk, 
not to summon prayer, but to tap into what was already there. That discipline became essential to negotiating a complex and extremely painful family history. Crittenden's adopted brother, Blake, hounded by drug addictions, was killed in a homicide. Her parents, then retirement age, gained custody of her nephew, Dylan, and became his de facto parents. Then, when her mother died of cancer, her aging father was effectively a single parent. Then followed a broken and deeply troubling relationship with a man, a vicious clinical depression that lasted over a year, and then a third death, her father's, all of which left her feeling like a Christian failure and a fraud. In the end, she writes, Christian prayer is not only a way through loss and grief, it's a call of love and grace. It's the growing realization that, yes, the water will hold us if we learn to relax. Lindsay Crittenden, The Water Will Hold You, A Skeptic Learns to Pray. For film this week, I review No End in Sight, a new film recently released in theaters here in 2007. You probably won't learn anything new about the Iraq War from this understated documentary nor should you expect any sort of neutrality. But the catastrophic consequences of the war for our country and for the whole world make its chronological review of the basic facts worthwhile. The cinematic power of pictures as compared to reading books about Iraq puts a very human face on the war. Director Charles Ferguson's film is a searing indictment of the recklessness gross incompetence and political cynicism of the Bush administration. He interviews soldiers, diplomats, Bush appointees, State Department officials, and Iraqis, all of whom tell their personal stories about working hard at what they thought was a noble cause, only to discover that the emperor and his minions had no clothes and, for that matter, had no conscience. Their sense of betrayal is heartbreaking. The film makes it clear that the administration's incompetence and hubris doomed their naive plan from the very beginning, and that five years later there is still, as the title of the film says, no end in sight. Director Charles Ferguson is not your run-of-the-mill filmmaker. He earned a Ph.D. from MIT founded and then sold his company Vermeer Technologies to Microsoft in 1996, was for three years a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and has been a visiting professor at both MIT and Berkeley. No End in Sight, from the year 2007. And finally, we've posted a poem by George MacDonald. George MacDonald lived from 1824 to 1905. The title of his 
poem is called The Grace of Grace. Had I the grace to win the grace of some old man in lore complete, my face would worship at his face, and I sit lowly at his feet. Had I the grace to win the grace of childhood, loving shy apart, the child should find a nearer place and teach me resting on my heart. Had I the grace to win the grace of maiden living all above, my soul would trample down the base that she might have a man to love. A grace I had no grace to win knocks now at my half-open door. Ah, Lord of glory, come thou in. Thy grace divine is all and more. The Grace of Grace by George MacDonald Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 16th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.